Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, just a quick uh, invitation for those of you who have not yet uh, joined Bulwark Plus. Uh, membership in Bulwark Plus gives you uh, access to a number of things, including my morning newsletter, Morning Shots, a triad by JVL, uh, other podcasts like The Next Level and The Secret Podcast, and of course, our Bulwark Plus exclusive live streams. Uh, which we do on a weekly basis, uh, and this is membership. This is this is a way to be part of this community of sane people in this particular era. You know, a lot of, I know that a lot of people were wondering, well, what happens after Donald Trump leaves? Well, the answer is the fight goes on. If there's any doubt, just look at the headlines today where the Republican Party is trying to decide, huh, what do we do with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Liz Cheney? And, get, and guess who is the more controversial figure in that party? So going forward, this is going to be a long-term struggle, and we're we're here for it. Uh, we are going to, you know, stick around um, for as long as it takes. And we really appreciate all of your support, all of you that have uh, signed up for Bulwark uh, Plus. Uh, and here's a special offer. I mentioned it a couple of times um, that that if you go to uh, is it the bulwark the bulwark.com slash charlie you can get a 30-day free trial membership if you just sign up you can just see what see what you perhaps have been missing and to be part of this particular community we would we would really appreciate it and uh, and once again you know thank you so much for all of you who have been listening to this podcast and i think i mentioned it yesterday with uh, aaron ryan that we had crossed uh, 32 million total downloads and 2.6 million just in the last month. Uh, and I really appreciate that. And I certainly do not take that for granted. And I know that Bill Crystal doesn't take it for granted as well. By the way, did you hear my, we, we name checked you yesterday, Bill? I didn't hear on that. The, okay. Congratulations, first of all, on the 2.6 million is really a huge number. But I do want to just say a word about Bill Work Plus. And I wasn't, I didn't know you were going to make this pitch. So this wasn't coordinated, but uh jonathan's midday newsletter is excellent it's very quirky jonathan last like but very interesting and provocative and there's always some article he links to the in, in some place i i don't know about usually that i read so and then his own thoughts are always so interesting and your newsletter which i get in my inbox what about 9 30 each morning mm -hmm. eastern time is just fantastic i mean the, i don't know how you actually get to such a comprehensive survey of what's important each morning, but also, you know, witty comments about it and uh, telling comments about it. So uh, the two of those are well, 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 well worth uh, what, what the Bulwark Plus contribution. And plus, it's great to have you part, people who contribute as part of the part of the effort here. So I'm I'm very bullish on Bulwark Plus and Bulwark bullish on this podcast. And usually you have better guests than today with me. But uh, so what did you and Aaron say yesterday? Well, I, I, I name checked you because um, I w w was commenting on the fact that we had 2.6 million downloads, which would normally be the biggest month ever, with the exception of the Billy Crystal, Bill Crystal month. Because remember a couple of months ago, we had uh, we had a podcast where um, we ran some audio of Billy Crystal and you yeah. And I, I think a lot of people must have thought that the podcast guest was Billy Crystal, maybe because we yeah, had you about think maybe yeah. we had about six to times. Kind of take down your colleague there, <laughs> undercut his confidence and morale. But that's okay. I'm, I'll just kind of soldier on here. You know, the second we, level. Bill we Crystal. have this spike though. It's just like <laughs> everything's going along, and then there is this one episode that is about six times as many people downloaded. <laughs> and my only explanation is that it was the Billy Crystal. 
um, vibe there. I, d- I don't know. So it's uh, possible. It's possible that Billy Crystal has got a few more fans than I do. I, I'm sort of I don't really I'm doubtful about that, but I guess anything's possible in this day and age, right? Anything is possible. Okay, so yeah. Hey, thanks for the kind word about the newsletter. So one of the things I talk about in the newsletter is Liz Cheney and the future of the Republican Party. This is really one of those extraordinary days where everything feels crystallized. The House Republicans have got to decide what do you do with a problem like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Liz Cheney. And uh, apparently they, they couldn't come to a decision on whether to strip uh, the you know bigoted lunatic QAnon conspiracy theorist Greene of her committee assignment last night. So they've, they've kind of punted on that. And we don't know what's going to happen because we know that the Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, wing of the Republican Party wants to purge Liz Cheney. I mean, think, think about it at the end of the day, if they're not able to do anything substantive about Marjorie Taylor Greene, they're okay with her, but we got to get rid of Liz Cheney. I mean, what, what would that say about the Republican Party or maybe just say again about the Republican Party? It, no, obviously today will be an interesting day. I guess the House Republicans meet late this afternoon. But but either way, as you say in the newsletter, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's not going away. Maybe McCarthy will remove her from one of her two committees, but maybe the Democrats will still insist on a vote about whether she should be on any committees at all. But she's a major figure in the party. It's been clear that McCarthy was un- met with her privately last night and was just unwilling, apparently, or, uh, to confront her and to really say, I'm sorry, you're off a committee here. This is unacceptable. Then the steering committee met last night, which is the leadership, and they didn't come to a conclusion. So they're desperately trying to find a middle ground, if you can believe it, between Marjorie Taylor Greene on the one hand and sanity on the other. So the best case for the House Republicans is that they're somewhere in between craziness and responsibility, but probably tilting towards craziness because Liz Cheney, who is a very conservative Republican, I know Liz well, I knew Liz well, I worked with her closely. We've drifted apart a little in the last three to four years because she's been pro-Trump. I mean, she's of course better than Trump and she knows all of Trump's faults, but she supported him in 2016. She supported him in 2020 for re-election. She voted against impeaching him at the beginning of 2020. She supported some of the things he did that really shouldn't have been supported, honestly, because she felt she had to and she was number three in the leadership. January 6th was too much. She made a very powerful statement and to her credit has stuck to that and voted for impeachment a week later, even though it was there were only 10 Republicans who did so. And most of the, I admire all 10 of those incidentally, and I think they all deserve support. But most of those you might say were more moderate Republicans who you might've expected to be discomforted with Trump. Whereas Liz Cheney is a conservative Republican and a member of the leadership. McCarthy has been unsu- not supportive of her, I would say very, oh, well, she's, I respect Liz Cheney, but you know, she should have consulted with me first and the way she said it wasn't mm. so good. And now I guess he's going to allow, I don't know if he has a choice, a debate about her uh, status as the number three Republican in the house, the conference chair, and maybe there'll actually be a vote and that will be an interesting, but I mean, it'll be an interesting glimpse into the window into where the house Republicans are, but it's a glimpse already of such a level of craziness that, that, uh, you know, it's not going to, she might win a vote by, you know, by 30 votes, mm. she might lose a vote by 30 votes. It might be inconclusive, but the big story is the house Republicans really are, and they're the closest to the public. Obviously they're elected every two years. That is not a party that can even pretend to govern. No, and they're not, and they're not interested in it. So I want to stick with this point that you just made here, because, you know, every once in a while, I hope people talk about, you know, what what is the future of of moderate Republicans in the party? Look, um, this is the thing about Liz Cheney, and you you said it, but I but I have some of the numbers here on this. She she is not a moderate. 
she she is she's not a rhino she's not a squish she was she was a loyal 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 uh trump supporter and she supported the entire uh conservative agenda the quote-unquote conservative agenda uh, right down the line in fact you know the guys from 538 have been tracking all of this and so over trump's presidency she voted with trump 94 percent of the time in his first two years, she voted with Trump 96% of the time. Now, occasionally, obviously, she might have not have voted with him on some spending bills, but she didn't just vote to support Trump's policies. I mean, she voted down the line on regulation. She voted on trade, pretty much everything Donald Trump wanted her to do, she did. And, you know, she lined up to support Trump uh, again up until January 6th. It, Remember back in February 2019, um, you know, we thought it was a red line, but she voted to uphold Trump's uh, emergency order on funding the, the Mexican border wall. That was a real loyalty litmus test. Uh, we were very disappointed in her. July 2019, she voted against a resolution condemning Trump for his racist comments about four Democratic Congresswomen. She voted against the attempts to uh, to impeach him over, over Ukraine again and again. So she was one of the people who had totally bought into all of these policy things, all of the personal stuff, and hyper lawyer, hyper loyal, reliable foot soldier until she wasn't. And then the loyalty counted for nothing. This is the thing about the Trump world. You know, when she called out Trump, none of those votes mattered. None of the policy issues or the bills or the items on the agenda counted anymore. So, you know, obviously, you know, she's the one who has to be primaried. I mean, even if she survives today, she will be primary. But I think this is what's revealing about it is, you know, despite remember how often we've been told, oh, Bill, Charlie, don't pay attention to what he tweets. Look at his policies. Look at what he's done. But what it comes down to, it's always Trump all along, right? I mean, you know, forget the trade, you know, taxes, healthcare, abortion, regulations, judges. There's only Trump. Because here's the bottom line. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene supports Trump, and Lynn Cheney doesn't go along 100%. And that's all that counts right now. Then that explains what's happening today. Right. And look at the Senate, which has been a little better. I mean, the senators didn't vote to overturn the election results the way the House Republicans, uh, a large majority, did. But they, Trump is now out of office. There are no policies left to defend. There's no, uh, there's no weakening of Trump if you vote to convict him uh, of the impeachment in the Senate next week. There's no uh, uh, undoing of whatever of the tax rates. There's no, right. there's no removing of the judges. Right. So we're just right. beyond all the policy stuff. We have a pure vote on whether he should be held accountable for what happened on January sixth for his propagation of what you've called the deep lie. I like that mm -hmm. phrase, uh, the big lie or the deep lie, uh, and uh, the effects it had on the country and on the people, obviously, who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, his silence on the afternoon of January 6th, uh, when he's the president of the United States and did nothing to come to the rescue of the United States Capitol and the people in it. Um, all of that, that can be condemned. You don't give up. You know, uh, Amy Cody Barrett does not leave the Supreme Court. Right. If, if you're a senator and you vote to convict Trump, the tax rates don't go back to what they were in 2016. Uh, the Biden administration is neither stronger nor weaker the next day as a result, honestly. I'd say actually a little weaker because Republicans would have more credibility in opposing uh, the Biden administration. But they still apparently, we don't know for sure, won't vote based on that earlier vote. Five of the 50 Republican senators, 10 percent, look like they're you know really going to vote to convict. What's the reason for that? I mean, that's not that is There's no excuse. Right. That is fear, I guess. Of, well, it's, it's a couple of things. Some of them agree with Trump. Some of them, you know, don't don't want to repudiate Trump as they want to be part of a party 
which has a strong Trumpist element. They might prefer that Trump personally step aside a bit. They might prefer that a couple of the really fringy parts of the element be pushed away, but they want that kind of party. Others are just uh, afraid to take it on or don't think it's worth it or whatever calculation they're making. But to that vote next week, if it is next week or the week after on conviction, is is extremely revealing for the reasons you were saying that it's it, it has nothing to do with any policy or 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 well any policy at all or or hurting the Republicans in an election maybe they could have said in the summer of 2020 we can't weaken our our team here and then it was we can't weaken the Georgia candidates for for January 5th that is all gone all is, the excuses are gone yeah. right. So let's talk about the impeachment trial because we got the we got the legal brief yesterday, and uh, I be, be, because I'm kind of a geek, I read through um, I, read, I read through them, and I, I don't know about you, but the contrast was pretty dramatic. <laughs> it just you put them side by side, and and I'm not just making fun of of the of, of the Trump defense, which you know starts off by misspelling the United States Senate and and then misquotes the Constitution. I mean, you know what a, what a lightweight work it was. But I really have to say that I thought the House Democrats um, did a masterful job, both in describing the law, but also in just laying out Donald Trump's misconduct here, just laying it out and putting it in context. Yeah, I agree. People should read it. It's not that long. The whole thing is maybe 50 pages, but the you can skim a couple of parts of it where they deal with the constitutional arguments mm-hmm. about not convicting someone once he's out of office, which are, I, I think, bad arguments by the Trump people, and they knock those down. But on the substance, I, I give them credit for this, and this is something we urged, actually, in the bulwark uh, several times. Jeff Toulis and I had a piece on this, uh, on, on Trump's dereliction of duty on January 6th. They broadened, you know, in a way, the, the original article of impeachment, or, or at least they they broadened, probably not quite right, but they didn't narrow it in the sense of making it just about what Trump said at noon on January 6th. It's really important. The yeah. days before. They laid out the pattern of conduct from November 3rd on, and really before November 3rd. The big lie about the election, the attempts privately and publicly within the federal government and in dealing with state government officials and in rallying public mobs to overturn the election, culminating in the events of January 6th and then culminating in his silence during the events of January 6th. Um, and even what he said late in the afternoon of January 6th, when he said they were was it good people, I can't remember anymore, they were, uh, he praised them. And, uh, yeah, uh, we love you. Yeah, I love you. So, uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. They kill Officer Nicknick, yeah. and then he loves them. So, um, you know, it's, it's. I guess he didn't die until the next yeah. morning. But I mean, they they create an unbelievable amount of violence and damage. Yeah, police officer died. Five people, including a Capitol police officer, died. Yeah, exactly. Trump know. sort of said anything about that, or you know, has he kind of apologized? I, I want to go back to that in a second. But anyway, the House. So I do think the House. The manager's brief in the impeachment case is a it it does capture the gravity of the situation and the breadth of Trump's attempted usurpation. A friend of mine said this to me about ten days ago that you know everyone's talking about insurrection, which is true, but really if you look back at the history of kind of people writing about democracy, what are they worried about? They're worried about a usurpation of power. I think Lincoln uses that term in the Lyceum speech. Trump was trying to usurp power. He was trying to stay in power and prevent Biden from legitimately taking his his turn in the presidency since he had won the vote for the presidency in the Electoral College. And so the uh, the insurrection was in the service of a usurpation. 
And I think the house, uh, I don't think the house refuses the term usurpation, but it, it, it lays that out. It lays that out quite well. No, and I think this was really important because it, 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 it is that whole big lie, deep lie beginning in November that, that if the president had not lied about the election, if he had not propagated the lie, if he had not spread the lie, if he had not insisted that other Republicans go along with the lie, none of this would have happened. And there's a great paragraph right there in the, in the House brief. None of this would have happened without the president. The president could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence on the day of uh, January 6th. He did not. There has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States uh, to fulfill his uh, his office. Okay, so you know, and you also talked about the, the, his dereliction of duty that day. I think this this is what is important is to paint the entire picture. And we've gotten we've gotten a lot of reports that they're planning on making a very very emotionally compelling video presentation to the Senate because you know there's been some remarkable work uh, by folks who've put together the entire story of all of this and. Uh, I am. I actually do think it's going to be interesting. Look, in the end, I think Republicans are going to weasel out by using hiding behind the the bogus constitutional argument here. But it it, it is interesting that I, I'll be interesting to see whether whether anybody actually tries to substantively defend Donald Trump. You know, yeah, substantively no, defend his conduct. That will be interesting. And I come back to I, I mentioned this in passing. So let me just make this point that um, you and I have both made this before, but it's worth emphasizing. I think. What would let's just say they meant well? I mean, source whether it's Trump or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Kevin McCarthy, who said after the election, what three days after I think on November fifth or sixth, I think it was on Fox something. Trump won the election. He didn't say yes, right? You know, he didn't say let the legal process go forward, which was kind of the moderate, you know, excusing of Trump's not conceding position. Trump won the election. We all need to, you know, to yeah. act or something Speak like up. that. Don't be, yeah. don't be quiet about this. Yeah. It was, it was even stronger maybe, but yeah. so, um, so he's part of this too. Has any of them said, as I think any decent person would say in, some, in a similar circumstance, you know what? I, I I didn't mean, of course, for people to steam the storm of the Capitol. I meant, you know, let's have a legal process. I mean, it can be interpreted their own words. And I'm very sorry if anyone un- misunderstood me. And I apologize for the terrible things that happened for if I inadvertently contributed to them. Now, I don't think in all these cases it was so inadvertent, but that would be at least the minimal thing one would do. I was trying to think of myself or you or anyone, you know, in a situation where you might have said something maybe a little bit heated in some moment, some people, you know, do something really pretty bad as a result, not as a result of what one says, but in accordance, let's just say with what one says, one feels terrible, right? And you say, I, that's not what I meant. And I, I, I really, I'm sorry. And I, I regret that. I'm going to be more careful in the future. None of them, none of them has said that they all went along, almost all of them with the, uh, the bogus claim of the steal. Some of them finally, three weeks, six weeks later, oh no, I guess it looks like it's now legitimate, you know. But no reprimand of Trump, no uh, acceptance of their own responsibility of going along with it, uh, either by echoing it or even magnifying it, or at least being silent about it. Uh, McConnell, I mean, even Mitch McConnell, who's behaved a little bit better in the last few weeks until the Georgia runoff on January 5th. I mean, it was all, we got to keep quiet because we have to keep the coalition together. Think of that. Think of that. You're justifying poisoning the American democratic system because you think it gives you a better chance of holding two Senate seats in, in a runoff. I mean, it's so irresponsible. I'm so I'm glad they didn't hold the seats. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a perfect uh, punishment, you might say, but 
Um, but not enough punishment, really, because they really are, so many of them are complicit in this. That's not just, and Marjorie That's Taylor right, Greene, yeah. I'm happy yeah. she's going to be disciplined, mm-hmm. but in a certain way, she's become a scapegoat. You know, they, they discipline her and they pretend she's the problem. She's not the problem. Donald Trump's the problem. Well, and Donald Trump and, and, and all the Republicans that went along with him. Word for Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, I mean, remember we had that uh, that article in the Bulwark about Ron Johnson calling some guy in, in Brown County and said, "Of course, I know that Biden won the election, but I can't say that because right. that would be political suicide." So all of these Republicans. So Mitch McConnell's latest version, though, is, and maybe he's telling the truth. I mean, that that he was duped. That he was duped by Jerry Kushner and others who called him up and say, "Look, uh, the pre- just give him some time. Give give the president some time." Uh, he's going to concede, so you don't have to immediately acknowledge Biden's victory. And McConnell went along with that, at least until the the electoral votes were were cast. But but that was a crucial period of time where the the, the deep lie penetrated, you know, both the media ecosystem and the grassroots of the Republican Party and elected officials. And uh, but you would think that that at some point, um, Mitch McConnell would come out and say, "Yeah, I was I was misled." You know, I, 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 I regret this. But then, of course, that's that's admitting to quite a bit, isn't it? I mean, yeah, too much. I guess, and so they're not saying that. Now, and again, they, I'm, I'm happy if they discipline Marjorie Taylor Greene. But I mean, she literally she wouldn't be in Congress. She, she wouldn't be at all famous if she if Trump hadn't embraced, legitimized and excused all the crazy conspiracy theories, all the lying, and then personally, of course, embraced her once she won the primary, as did, incidentally, Kevin McCarthy and the NRCC. The National Republican Congressional Committee could have said no funding for Marjorie Taylor Greene. She won right. the primary. She's got the R beside her name, unfortunately, in the 14th District Congressional District of Georgia, but we're not supporting her. That's happened occasionally in, 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 very, in rare cases. Uh, no, they were fine with her. Not only were they fine with her, they designated her a young gun, which is their yeah. little, you know, standing, which signals donors, yes, you should help this person. She's a sort of a, she has a winnable race and it's important to us that she wins the race. She wins the race. She screams and yells for, in a totally irresponsible way for two and a half months. She's sworn in. Uh, January 6th happens uh, and no one says anything. No one does anything really until the Democrats threaten to bring it to the floor to kick her off the committee. And then Kevin McCarthy, uh, uh, sort of kicks into a very limited action to try to minimize the damage. So it's, it's, it's so irresponsible. And again, none of them, where, who's the biggest liar and the biggest conspiracy theorist peddler uh, in American politics, not Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's Donald Trump. It is Donald Trump. So, you know, we talk about the crazy and the crazy conspiracy theories, and I I just want to stop there for a moment because, you you know, that, that word can be, be overused. Because it really strikes me reading the Axios account. You read Jonathan Swan's Axios account of, of some of these screaming matches right. that they had in the Oval Office uh, or Mike Lindell, my pillow guy going on, on was it Newsmax yesterday? That and, and, and I mean this advisedly. These people are crazy. I mean, there is a level of insanity here that is like, we're not talking about eccentric. We're not talking about, well, you know, pushing the envelope. I mean, these people are nuts. And the president of the United States was listening to them. Here's a man sitting in the Oval Office with people who clearly have no idea what they're talking about, making stories up, insane conspiracy theories, proposing nutty ideas. And the president of the United States, the commander in chief of our military, um, the, the man who still had the nuclear codes at that time, is listening to them, encouraging them and indulging them. I mean, so in retrospect, you got to be feeling when you said, I'm alarmed, I'm alarmed. It's like, 
wow, there was every reason to be alarmed. I mean, just how bizarre this was. I think I think historians are going to have a hard time understanding. They're going to look, you know, look at this and go, "Okay, you people out there, did you understand that your president was doing this kind of stuff?" Well, but what they could have should have understood is that this their their president, our president, was publicly encouraging behavior, which did culminate in January sixth. Yeah. Uh, the reporting's great, and uh, it's it's interesting to read. And I think I was right to be alarmed about all aspects of what was happening in the Defense Department and what Trump was trying to do with the Justice Department and so forth. But on the public record, there's no excuse, and you've made this point many times, for having supported him for re-election uh, or having excused his behavior after the election. Again, a little different in 20, if you're voting for policies you agree with, if you're even justifying McConnell jamming. Uh, Justice Barrett threw in that last week before the election. Those are all, you know, I think I'm not happy about those, but but there's there's kind of a, uh, you know, a rationale for, for, for swallowing hard and going along. No rationale for justifying, for keeping silent uh, in, in light of his public attacks on the legitimacy of our democratic elections and his public demagoguery and consp- embrace, embracing of crazy conspiracies about the election. I mean, leave aside QAnon stuff, which he also embraced and retweeted all kinds of craziness about SEAL teams being secretly killed by army, you know, uh, soldiers to keep things quiet and all all kinds of terrible stuff, really. But uh, the actual election theft, which is the big lie, the deep lie, uh, a lot of people echoing it and, and, and a lot of people being silent about it. So one of the more interesting developments, I think, is is the fact that the the voting machine companies are coming out with these big big lawsuits, which has succeeded in doing something that that nobody else had succeeded in doing, which is getting some of the crazy um, you know media folks on the right wing to back off big time. Uh, in, in case people haven't seen this, this two minute clip of Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, going on Newsmax, which of course had been a conduit for him, very friendly environment, and he comes on and he's supposed to talk about cancel culture, and he starts ranting and raving, and they have to shut him down and they they you know he did directly one of the the male anchors is is reading you can tell kind of this legal thing like there's no proof whatsoever that all the dominion did anything wrong and blah 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 and lindell is 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 just you know yelling and spouting and keeps keeps going on and eventually the the newsmax anchor just walks off the set (laughs) he's i don't want to be part of this i don't want to be involved in this but it is amazing how billion dollar lawsuits can focus the mind and and so you know, when the story is all written, so maybe it won't be the Senate. Maybe it won't be the criminal justice system. Maybe it will be civil lawsuits that bring down Rudy Giuliani and and some of these uh, and some of these serial liars. Um, and and corporate actions of different kinds and citizen actions of different kinds, I think, can make a real difference. I mean, why do we have to have uh, Newsmax on our cable packages? Couldn't we? Uh, push Verizon or Comcast or whoever to let us pick our, the channels we want and not subsidize those channels. They get paid, you know, a certain amount to be ca- to, to to be carried, and if fewer of us want want those networks, and this would be yeah. true of Fox, of course, they would get less in the way of revenues. Advertisers is a more obvious case, and you know, shareholders can tell corporations if they're public corporations, uh, we don't want you to advertise on these networks or on these shows and and people can of course as consumers not buy my pillow pillows and so forth so i think there's a lot of uh you know we need to think more broadly about uh, strengthening the aspects uh, strengthening our country and our political system through civil society and through not simply through government and hoping that the senate republicans will do the right thing and i, I think the more you think about it social media the similarly you can have reforms in the way 
social media is, is regulated and, and the incentive structure that might create a healthier situation. So we need to think more broadly about going forward about uh, we can't just treat ourselves uh, as defenseless. Well, what can we do? Right, right, These, right. Like Fox News just exists and there, there's no governing structure. There's no board of directors. There's no ability to pressure advertisers or cable companies or individuals who contribute to it, Frank, not pressure them in a bad way, but, but make clear that they're part of something that really is doing damage to the country. I think we need to think more broadly in ways that are consistent, obviously, with I think basic civility, freedom of speech, respecting other people's rights, um, uh, about what we can do to maintain these guardrails. It can't just we can't just hope that a bunch of politicians in Washington uh, do it for us. Oh, I know, I agree, and I don't want the politicians in Washington to do it for us. But I think this whole idea of the free riders, you know, the uh, you know the Newsmaxes or even Fox News uh, being on the cable bill that you, you you pay for a cable package, you don't necessarily choose them, and those carriage fees are immensely important for these folks. So that's a, that's an area of vulnerability. I also think that, you know, conservatives in particular ought to be stepping up and saying, remember, these social media sites are private companies and we need to resist any effort by the government to compel them either to say something or not say something. That was amazing. Uh, you see the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, is actually proposing legislation that would fine any social media company a $100,000 a day if they deplatformed anyone running for office in Florida during a period during a, a campaign, in other words, they would use government power to force Twitter to carry someone that they as a private company did not choose to carry. And yet conservatives are like, yes, absolutely. Government power forcing private businesses to do stuff. We're in we're in it. Yeah, and it's not as if they're deplatforming a lot of candidates. They're, they're not. But in the exceptional case of a true conspiracy theorist who's inciting violence, they don't have the right to say, no, I'm sorry, we're not going to be used for that. That's ridiculous. So you know what, what uh, took place a year ago today? Nope. The Iowa caucuses. Is that right? <laughs> Think back on how, you know, um, things change. I mean, this is one of the things to keep in mind. The things move very, very quickly how different the world was. Bernie Bernie Sanders, I think, got the most votes in the caucus, um, although I, 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 I've not forgotten how it actually works. Pete Buttigieg, he didn't he end up winning the most yeah, delegates. Yeah, he, he basically got a tiny bit more in the way of delegates, I think, yeah. Yeah, they, they I mean, tied, yeah. think what's happening in one year. Okay, so let's talk about this. Um, there, there, there's an interesting back and forth about the way uh, Joe Biden has handled his first I was going to say, I have to look at this now. Do you realize that he's been president for two weeks? It's crazy. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, I heard Jen Psaki yesterday was talking about, well, in our first 10 weeks, we have done. And goes, oh, wait, wait, wait. That was a Freudian slip. In our first 10 days, we have done. Yeah. It's been two weeks. And, you know, I was listening to MSNBC and there were people, you know, wringing their hands about why he hasn't moved more quickly on this issue or that issue. Like, people, give it some time. Really? But, you know, there is there is some um, there is a lot of chatter on the right saying that, uh, hey, he ran as this bipartisan unifier and he's moving hard left. He is uh, pushing through his big spending bill without a bipartisan majority. Your thoughts on on the, on this, um, whether or not I mean, how Biden is handling that whole issue of the one point nine trillion dollar covid release relief bill. He wanted to have Republican support, obviously not going to get Republican support. So they're going to push it through on a on a party line vote, it appears. 
Yeah, it looks that way. Before getting to that, I do have a yeah. thought or two about that. I would just say your general point about how much things have changed in the year, the pandemic obviously yeah, didn't, something. wasn't on our front and center on our minds, though it, I guess, existed already in China on uh, in, in early February of, of uh, of course, it existed in Feb- early February 2020. And uh, as you say, it looked like Biden was finished. Um, things can change a lot. And that's a good uh, lesson going forward, I guess. I mean, we shouldn't yeah. be too fatalistic about anything, whether it's the Republican Party or individuals, I guess, even in the party or or, or policies or the country or 50, you know, 40 million people being believing crazy conspiracy theories. These things can break. I mean, the fever can can break and, and things can fade away almost as quickly as they rose up. It doesn't mean they haven't done a huge amount of damage and it doesn't mean one should complacently expect it all to fade away. Right. It fades away more if you take it on, right? If you denounce it, if you if you ex- explain the truth. But anyway, that is, I think, a, kind of a... Well, a, actually, a, you, yeah. you had a tweet on this the other day where you're pointing out that uh, in... Uh, was it in... in 24, <laughs> get... I mean, Adam, honestly, I, this is correct what I said, but I haven't really looked yeah. at the back and yeah. uh, re- researched and reminded myself exactly of all the twists and turns. But 1924, if I'm not mistaken, that was the 104 ballot Democratic convention, uh, which ended up nominating some Wall Street lawyer, what was his name, Davis, I think, who, who lost mm-hmm. uh, badly. But they refused to condemn the Ku Klux Klan, which was then reascendant in its kind of second wave, I suppose. Um, and that was the Democratic Party, which had a huge number of Southern delegates, but also in Northern states like Indiana, the Klan was very powerful. So they refused to condemn the Klan. In 28, the Democratic Party nominated the first Catholic nominee for president, mm-hmm. Al Smith, the governor of New York. And in 1932, it nominated Franklin Roosevelt and then dominated American politics, obviously, for the next really, what, 40 years, I'd say. Uh, so almost. So that's, you know, things can change quickly. And and I suppose if we had been there in 24, we would have said, can you believe it? They can't even condemn the Ku Klux Klan. And maybe one would have said by 32, you know what, that party's kind of pulled itself together and has a, we wouldn't have agreed with it all, but a respectable, you know, chance of getting us uh, out of the depression and, and dealing with the problem. So uh, no, I, I think that's a really change. good good point, because in 1924, the Democrats viewed the KKK the way Republicans view QAnon, which is yeah. that it's an important constituency. Yes, yeah. they're crazy, but we can't alienate them because we need those votes. And so you figure that this is a party pretty much linked to this. But four years later, four years later, they nominate a Roman Catholic. And it, I mean, really, so, so yeah, things do change and they are unpredictable. So that's worth doing. So let's go back. What do you I, think about Biden? Biden? I mean, Biden. I, we had a good piece by Stan Voiger. You know, mm-hmm. there, there were ways that stimulus package or economic relief package could have been better structured, I think. I might have even gone just for the vaccine and COVID stuff separately and get that through in a super emergency way and, and tell Republicans you got to vote for this, at least. Because I'm so, I think the vaccine and the testing is so important to, to our well-being. Having said all that, I, I guess... I don't have a you know detailed view of whether the 1.9 is better uh, trillion is better than the 600 billion, but I also don't think it's worth having a heart attack about. Honestly, if if, if they spend too much money in the 1.9 trillion, they'll probably claw it back from the uh, wealthy with a tax increase anyway. In two years, the Republican position is a little inconsistent. It's, we shouldn't give this much money to the wealthy, and then the Democrats say, okay, fine. You know, look, it's safer just to give everyone money now. Let's just prevent. You know, businesses from going out of business. Let's make sure we're flooding the system basically with 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 money and with money also for the vaccines and for schools. And if you know later on we can come back to this in two years, Republicans, oh my God, you can't raise taxes on people making more than a million bucks in two years. So there's a funny kind of uh, inconsistency there. But I would err on the side of going big. Uh, you can always you know pay that down later. 
if you go too small and if businesses do go out of business and if these variants, which I've now talked to a couple of public health professionals, uh, professionals, and they are pretty worried about these variant strains and their greater contagion and possibly being somewhat more resistant to the vaccines, hopefully, and thank God not, it seems like the vaccines work for, on them for now, but the more contagion you get, obviously, the more challenge you get, the more possibility of other variants, that being hyper- uh, you know, urgent about dealing with the thing as well as we can, as quickly as we can, I think makes a lot of sense. And if the price for that is is wasting some money, we should do so. And I, I, so I am worried about where we end up if we kind of uh, go slow. I think the Republican senators who made the counteroffer are acting in good faith. And I think mm-hmm. Biden acted in good faith by meeting with them for two for, for, for two hours mm-hmm. in the Oval Office. But they can't guarantee their votes for some compromise in between. They, they can't get any other Republican votes. And, uh, you know, I do think on this one, the Democrats are going to end up passing something without much Republican support. Republicans will complain and then everyone will just judge on whether it works or not. Right. And, and, that, and that ultimately is going to be the way people look at it. And I think that one of the, the lessons is that, is that most political parties do not pay a price for... Um, uh, you know, well, I'm sorry that that you don't get any points for being bipartisan if you don't actually get the job done. One of the things that has actually helped me understand, I think, what's the thinking in the White House right now is is Barack Obama's book, uh, mm-hmm. where he goes into great detail of all of the efforts, which of course we didn't give much attention to at the time when we didn't appreciate it much at the time, but that that he really, really, really wanted to get Republican support for health care and for the stimulus package. And he talks about all the things they did to get Olympia Snow on board, you know, the number of meetings and dinners and lunches. And and they promised her, I think at one point, Obama said, look, if you just give her Air Force One for her own personal use. <laughs> and they just kept trying to get, you know, one Republican after another. And they negotiated with them and they went back and forth for months. And then eventually there was a meeting where they, I can't remember which Republican it was. And they said, you're really not ever going to vote for this bill, are you? And the guy goes, nah, probably not. So um, it, it strikes me that it's in the back of Biden's mind. He wanted to do it, but he doesn't want to get caught up in what happened with Obama, spending all of that time, all of, you know, going after, you know, remember all the, you know, the, 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 the corn husker kickback and all of the other stuff that went on. It was, you have to do it. You have to do it fast. So I, I'm thinking that 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 whole experience really is informing what's going on right now. No, I think very much so. And I would just say, in addition, so that was the Obamacare experience, but the stimulus experience for Obama or the economic relief, as soon as he came in, and, and people do forget the bottom was falling out of the economy, yeah. and they were terrified that you could have a genuine full-scale Great Depression. And they jammed through without making much in the way of concessions to Republicans, the original uh, bailout, you know, 800 billion or whatever it was, seemed like a huge number at the time, uh, uh, stimulus package. Um, And they have all decided, and I don't know if they're right or not, some of the economists have decided they should have probably got somewhat bigger, that they didn't get anything out of being a little cautious and trying to be a little, quote, responsible looking. And so I think they very much have internalized that lesson to go bigger rather than smaller. At the time, I remember thinking, it was awfully big, and they didn't give Republicans much in the way of a handhold to support it. I was at a, a dinner with a president, President-elect Obama. This was at George Will's house. It got some attention at the time. The week before inauguration, it was an attempt to that by them to kind of do a little outreach to the mm-hmm. kind of conservative columnist types and so forth, magazine types in Washington. 
And I remember the one we each sort of had one chance to really say something substantive, you know, went around the table kind of the dinners with presidents are not really like normal chit chat dinners somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was some chit chat, but then it got kind of a little formalistic, you might say. Or, uh, mm-hmm. And my one contribution was to say that actually I thought he should put in some a lot of construction money for defense and a lot of some defense acquisition that does produce jobs quickly. The Pentagon can spend money quickly. That's one reason we got out of the depression at the beginning of in the run up to World War II. Uh, and I thought it would attract, frankly, a few people like me who cared a lot mm-hmm. about the drawdown of the military. We'd, we'd, we'd really, you know, fighting those war, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, we had depleted a lot of our resources. And he was sort of, well, I'll talk to Bob Gates, but, you know, they're going to do what's right for the defense. But that's sort of a different issue. He wasn't very interested in it, honestly. And maybe he was right. And, and maybe uh, my thing wouldn't have mattered anyway. But there was a certain attitude of, look, we won and we've got, what, 59 Democratic senators and a big majority in the House. So we don't have to listen to you guys. So I think they had, unlike, I'm sure this is not quite captured in his book, but they have some responsibility for the, oh, definitely. For the you know, partisanship that took over very, very quickly after his after the good feelings, after his victory, and after McCain's gracious uh, concession and so forth. But again, the lesson they've learned from all that is, I think, especially when you're in a crisis, go big and don't waste too much time bargaining. And so I, I think they're going to do that. Yeah, the, the, the only thing that I think would, would be, and, and I, I see that they're considering this, is, is finding a way to, to target the money a little bit better, um, maybe to cap the, uh, you know, cap the the checks, uh, the relief checks uh, at, a, at a lower income level, because just, you know, spewing a money cannon over the world is not necessarily, I mean, I don't need a check. I didn't lose any jobs. I haven't missed any paychecks. Right. Um, you know, what we need is is not just is not just a, a raw stimulus of the economy. We need it to be targeted in relief because this is a, as, as they know well, I mean, this is a very weird recovery. It's a very K, you know, K-shaped. And, you know, to the extent that you focus the money on the people who are really hurting out there, as opposed to, you know, the half of Americans are not who are not hurting. I mean, this is this is this is a, this is a little bit different. So I would hope that they would target it a little bit more carefully. But other than that, like you just get it done, because ultimately we're going to look back on this. And Joe Biden either got a handle on uh, on, on the coronavirus pandemic or he did not. He either brought the economy back or he didn't. And nobody's going to care about the uh, sauces making of the legislation. They're just not. It's either you get this done, you succeed or you do not. And and frankly, this the challenge of the coronavirus is is, is extraordinary. You mentioned the the variants out there. Um, I think that the uh, the vaccination program has been more complicated than some people believe that it was going to be. We have the, uh, the, the the mutations, and then there's this whole question of getting kids back to school. Um, I mean, those those things those things are major challenges. I saw you were tweeting about one idea about schools. Yeah, it's, it's actually happening. It's not just an idea in Massachusetts. Governor Baker has announced, and I think it's beginning like now, or maybe it has begun this mm-hmm. week. I, was um, I, I know someone who's involved in one of these firms uh, who's producing these, these, these mass tests. They're going to just do mass, what's called pool testing, make it available for free. I think to every school, certainly to every public school, but I think every school in Massachusetts, the teachers' unions are on board. Basically, they teach, they they test the teachers and the staff, but then they also and that and they vaccinate them. Mm-hmm. That's already happening. But then they test all the kids, and you take you get twenty kids in a class. You test all twenty. It's cheap. These these mass tests. They're not quite as fancy as the individual tests. You dump them. You dump the twenty. You know uh, the test. Uh, you know what do you call mm-hmm. them? Uh, uh, Q tips or whatever they are in a, in a vat. If they're all negative, you know that class is fine. 
if the vac if there's a positive result, then you have to go test them each individually, which you then do quickly, and you you keep the kid who's sick home, and you keep masks on and social distancing and so forth. It's just a way to reassure people, not just it's a way to reassure people, and it's a way to obviously actually monitor the situation and prevent something from getting out of control at some school. It could also work for workplaces, and you could have instant testing in restaurants. Incidentally, people could come in and take a quick test the way when you go now maybe to a doctor's office or anywhere a lot of places you get a quick thermometer uh, you know read so that would help a lot until the vaccines really take hold i think the biden administration if i would i would say i think they are possessed of a sense of urgency if you talk oh, yeah. about but i i think they could demonstrate that a little more I'd, I'd be doing a little more you know sort of really urgent uh, urging of states and localities to go to this kind of testing re- regimen to get the schools open and then to get the vaccines distributed. And I know they're trying to do this. They're trying to now get those. A big mistake. It's ironic, right? The Trump administration, private sector friendly, didn't want to distribute the vaccines through CVS and Walmart and all these characters. So it was pretty much entirely through, through governments. And and it's been you know difficult and and cluttered and they're not using the now there are reasons they had you have to some of them have to be frozen very you know very cold temperatures but they're not using the places that actually are administering a million vaccines a day which is you know for flu shots which are basically your supermarket and they know how to do it and now they're the Biden administration is going to, it's going to take a few weeks but they're going to ramp that up so I think the actual vaccinating vac, vaccine program is going to get. Uh, improved and and sort of fixed in it, but I, I think the more urgency they can show on that, the better. And uh, I I still worry there's a little bit too much business as usual. Sorry, we're closing at five p.m. We're closing, mm-hmm. you know, we're not open for the weekend. Now it's easy for me to say that I'm not working at these places, and they would have to find people new employees, and that's again, but that's what the money was for. That's why some of that money in the stimulus packages for that. It's to pay the extra people you'd need to stay open Saturday and Sunday and to retrain, to get some retired nurses in and, you know, give them the quick training if they need it. And then they can give the shots and monitor people for the 15 minutes afterwards and so forth. So it's still not being treated quite like a kind of World War II, you know, all hands on deck, highest priority thing. It, it is the key. If that gets fixed, a lot of other things mm-hmm. in the economy will get fixed. Yeah, everything falls into place. Yeah. One of my favorite stories was this story out of a little town in South Carolina that was having some problem because their computers kept crashing. They were trying to you know, get people uh, vaccinated. And so the mayor had this idea. He figured, you know who does this really well, this sort of logistics? Uh, Chick-fil-A. So he goes right. to the manager of Chick-fil-A and he says, if we were to, if we were doing a drive through thing, how would you organize it? And the guy says, well, I would do this, 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 you know, I would do this. And apparently they dropped the wait time from more than an hour to less than 15 minutes because they were using Chick-fil-A, which almost had, you, you talk about wartime footing, sort of a Dunkirk feel to it, like all hands on deck. We're going to use all the people who are smart about logistics and how to do this stuff and we're going to get them involved in this. Yeah. And I mean, the irony again is the Trump administration, they pretended to have that attitude for about a month. You know, Kushner was having meetings <laughs> with MBAs and stuff. They didn't do any of that. And that's the real tragedy. They did a little bit on the vaccine development side, even there, though, it seems like there are now very promising Johnson & Johnson vaccines and AstraZeneca, is that what it's called, in, in the UK. They've uh, they've uh, administered more than a million of those in the UK. And the FDA is still kind of, well, we need to have a double-blind test for you know 28 days. I don't mean to minimize that. And right. We want to be careful and all this. But I, I do have the feeling there's not quite the sense from the top of 
forget it. You know what I mean? We will do the test at the same time, but we'll also start vaccinating. Maybe we'll start vaccinating right away. The people who, you know, the staff in the schools who aren't over 65, but still would make it a lot easier to reopen schools. So I, I just think they need a little more imagination, a little more uh, push, frankly, on the vaccine issue and on the testing issue. All right. I agree. Bill Crystal, thanks for coming on again today. We appreciate it very, very much as usual. My pleasure, Charlie. And I, I don't know if this will uh, help or hurt your, your fantastic run of more and more people listening to these podcasts, oh, but absolutely. you know, I'm not a star the way some of your people are. I mean, I know I'm going to just go be sulking all day about Billy. No, Crystal no, 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 being, no. no. Being it, a huge I can call, I could email Billy Crystal and ask him to come on with you. And that would be, that please would don't blow up the internet. Right. Don't worry about it, Bill, because I, I will be tweeting out that, and, and my special guest, Billy Crystal, yeah, it's good. Uh, you know. it's good. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.